0: Ikki Publishing Media presents The Apocalypse Theater Podcast with Benjamin Allen, Episode 4. And so it's time for me to introduce someone who's very close to me. Elgar King has been watching out for us, making sure we're able to do the work that must be done. You'll discover that there is a multitude of universes that are being carefully watched in the same manner, and you might even notice for yourself that unforeseen forces seem to correct potentially catastrophic events in your life. What if this was someone's job? What if we're not the first humanoids to exist, and that there is a race of humans that decided to interlink the universes? If only you knew the magic words to travel to any of these universes at a thought. Enjoy this one. It's something special. I can feel it. Chapter 1. House of Horrors I was eleven years old when I defeated my first demon. My name is Algar Centrifius King. You might call this an account of my first year as a psionic, someone who can psychically manipulate the physical world using an ancient language that taps into the baseline programming within our reality, better known as magic. I consider this more of a written confession, marking the first chapter in what will chronicle my inevitable downfall and the complete destruction of the entire Eternium. Let's back up. Magical expression typically begins between the ages of 6 and 12, enhancing or declining with adolescence. In some children, this expression is limited, almost non-existent, but with others, it's impossible to hide. I was one of the latter. When I was ten, I remember watching cartoons on my back one afternoon, immersed in the show blaring from the screen. My mother stopped in the hallway nearby. She had a hamper of wet clothes that spilled to the floor as the flat-screen television that had been hovering over me crashed onto my arm the moment my eyes dropped focus. They had to buy a new television, but my arm was fine. I met Brenda a year after the television incident. It was a gray Sunday afternoon in the suburbs of Arlington, the same city where Amber Hagerman was abducted and murdered 20 years earlier. My father drove semi-trucks for a living. Any weekend he was home, he and my mother shamelessly disappeared for hours, leaving me to play the PS4 or watch television. Being a natural explorer, I went out the back door, climbed the side fence, and went for a walk. I had my basketball with me because I thought one day I would attempt to master the sport. I had yet to learn that I have laughably poor coordination. I've relived the scenario millions of times in my mind over the years. An old gray pickup truck entered the three-way intersection ahead and did an immediate U-turn at the sight of me, sparking my primal warning signs. The truck rolled closer and came to a stop five yards from my position. Leaving the engine idling, the driver opened the door and stepped out. He was balding with receding brown hair and his mustache had sprouts of gray whiskers. We locked eyes and I broke all social standards. I ran. I ran all the way home and jumped the fence to the safety of my backyard. In the time that our eyes connected, I saw all that he had done and all he intended to do. That's how I met Brenda. She was only a vision at first, but the abductor's gaze reflected his intention. He was proud of her. He wanted me too, but as long as he had Brenda, he would be okay. I saw that I could know her name just from the look in those murderous eyes. Witnessed him standing in a dimly lit bathroom with yellow and white tiled porcelain that had grimed between the tiles. He was wiping his hands with a red towel that had been white earlier. He had almost killed her that time. They say serial killers don't feel anything, but he felt everything. It was like a drug to know that he had power over her. His madness went on, but I pulled myself out and escaped. Until then, I had been innocent. After, I knew that human beings could develop an insatiable hunger for their desires. The worst thing I knew as I lay on the ground staring at the gray sky overhead was that Brenda, a 19-year-old missing law student from the University of North Texas, was still alive. I had wanted to tell my parents, but how would I explain that I didn't just think but knew a girl was being held against her will and would likely be tormented to death within the next few days? Could I change her unfortunate fate on my own? My answer came the next evening when one of the neighborhood boys and I were sitting on the play park of the elementary school. I saw the man prowling around the corner, watching us, tufts of his receding hair blowing in the wind. My friend had continued rambling about how much he loved his Xbox One as I watched the man return to his gray truck and start the engine. I memorized the last three digits of the license plate. I remembered the last three because they were BS and G, the same three letters that were on a DVD box set of the more recent Battlestar Galactica reboot series my parents had on the shelf at home. Maybe I should have called the police. I didn't. After what I had seen, I was more afraid of what might happen if they did nothing. What if I saw him again later? Whatever was inside me would be able to know what he had done, and it would be because I was too scared to take action. I grabbed an old arrow quiver my dad had given me to hold my baseball bat and slung it over my shoulder as I hopped on my black Huffy bicycle to search for Brenda. After 45 minutes of riding through the neighborhood, I found a house with a gray truck parked in the driveway. The license plate matched. How many gray trucks with the license plate ending in BSG can there be in one little suburb? That energy inside me was honing in on her. I could feel her fear as if it were my own. I wanted to go back, but I couldn't let him have her. Brenda's prison was an orange-red brick house that was slowly being consumed by the vines that crept over the walls from the garden below. I walked by the truck in the wide driveway in front of the garage that was the same color as the house but a different building. She wasn't inside, but that's where he kept his kidnapping tools. Brenda was in the heart of the house, and so was he. My fear mounted as I walked down the mossy sidewalk to the wooden front porch with the warped floorboards and chipped grey paint. I saw a screen door that was latched and locked because he never went in this way. I could sense his past movements. I touched a brick jutting from the corner of the house and felt a memory ingrained there. Manny. Manny Finch was his name. A month ago, he cursed as his elbow busted into the brick. He was carrying his seventh victim out to the car a young boy named Tyler Norowitz. He would have become a neurosurgeon if he hadn't been ruthlessly picked up after exiting an external bathroom behind a Shell gas station on I-20 in East Texas. It had been too easy. The kids' parents didn't even see Manny drive away with their child gagging on a cloth of chloroform in the back seat as they were perusing the snacks in the rundown gas station lobby yards away. There was a camera, but Manny knew where it was and hooked a left out of the parking lot into the neighborhood. It didn't capture his mercury sable pulling in or out. The family's maroon Honda Odyssey had a Colorado plate. They were heading for California, maybe stop by Carlsbad Caverns along the way, take a detour through the Grand Canyon and make some genuine family memories. That had been the plan. Manny had followed at a distance for about 45 minutes before family memories transformed into horrible tragedy. Tyler Norwitz was gone like the others, disappeared into Manny's dark world. I walked along the cement path between the garage and the house into the backyard. There was a pool that was covered with a plastic coverlet adjacent to the back entrance. I could tell it had been years since someone cleaned it from the algae that caked the pool's rim. Everything Manny touched seemed to die. The back door was open to a comfortable living room where I could hear The Price is Right playing on the television nearby. I climbed the cement steps and drew back the screen door just wide enough for me to slide inside. The rusty spring in the door gave a weak growl as I closed it quietly. It was summer and the air in the house was humid and hot, like he had wanted to cut the electricity bill by keeping the AC off in addition to having little ventilation. The muggy air carried the metallic aroma of blood as I stepped into the hall corridor. I heard a cry from the other room as Manny yelled at Brenda. I found a closet in the kitchen that was full of dirty magazines and stacks of garbage that made me sick to my stomach. The smell was horrendous. He hadn't cleaned in years. Months ago, Manny had injured his knee on a construction job site and was living off compensation and government disability checks while his knee had made a full recovery. Now that he was better, he was free to stalk his prey like a wolf hunting sheep. My plan was your standard jack-and-the-beanstalk method. I would wait until the demon was asleep and then rescue the golden goose from its chamber. Then we would flee without pursuit. Although, if I remember correctly, Jack had been pursued and this wasn't your average giant. He was a demon, and demons don't tire, they just become angrier. I watched through the cracked pantry door as Manny emerged from a room in the hall to go watch television. After the sun disappeared from the grimy windows in the kitchen, he cooked himself a pot of ramen noodles, chugged several beers, and collapsed on the couch with Brenda sobbing in the next room. She begged him to let her go, that she wouldn't tell anyone if he would just release her. We both knew letting her go wasn't part of the plan, His power drive would escalate soon and he would kill her. After that, it would be time to dispose of the body. Manny already had it planned out because Brenda was number eight. In his mind, it was like putting trash out on the curb. I must have waited a full hour before I heard Manny snoring. Brenda went silent, hoping he wouldn't wake up. I quietly pushed open the pantry door and rested the quiver and bat against the bar in the kitchen amidst the smelly open trash bags heaped throughout the room. I didn't want the bath handle to knock against something as I navigated the disgusting mess that was Manny's hallway. The house had hardwood floors, so I had to creep through the den toward Brenda, who was lying with her back to me in one of the rooms. Bars covered the door and windows like a prison from an old western movie. She wore only a loose brown shirt and a pair of gym shorts. The air was hot, but she was still shivering. Bloody smears marked the floor and walls. The floor creaked under my step, and Brenda turned around to see me. Her bruised expression widened and she started shaking her head. One of her eyes was bloodied, limiting her sight in that eye for the rest of her life. She mouthed the words, No, 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 no! I put my hands on the bars of the door. He'll kill you too, she whispered. I touched the lock of the cell door and it sprang open. It felt like I had triggered the lock mechanism to open with my mind, but maybe it wasn't locked to begin with. I had just realized that the house was too quiet. Who the? I heard Manny yell, but I was running down the hall before he could get the first part of his sentence out. Wearing only his black checkered boxers, he pounded down the hallway after me. I wasn't sure where I was going or why I had decided that running further into the house would be better than running out. The back door was in the other direction, but like a rabbit being chased by a weasel, I charged deeper into the hole. Bursting into Manny's bedroom, I immediately tripped on a pile of children's clothing by his dresser. I scrambled into a run around the bed as he entered the room behind me. I went to the window, but it was barred shut. Manny seethed with rage as he bounded after me. I dove under the queen-size bed that sagged low in the middle, pushed two Rubbermaid boxes full of socks and underwear out of the way, and crawled toward Freedom on the other side. A hand clamped around my ankle. Got you, you little- I fired my shoe directly into his mustached face, breaking his nose as he released me. Ow! He slammed his balding head into the wooden beam of his bed before backing out. I ran down the hall with Manny still charging behind me like an angry bull. I wondered if Brenda had escaped when I ducked under her as she swung a fire extinguisher around the corner into Manny's temple. As noble as this might have seemed, this wasn't a movie, and Manny was far too big to be taken down so easily. He shoved Brenda away with one hand, sending her sprawling throughout the heaps of trash he'd been too lazy to take out in the kitchen while redoubling his attention on me. The house had become even more of a wreck than it was before as many knocked things over to get me. He grabbed my wrist and pulled. I kicked him as hard as I could directly where his knee had been injured not long ago. Grimacing, he seized me by the throat, a searing grip that sent burning pain through my windpipe. I went dizzy and began to lose consciousness as he squeezed tighter, glaring with black eyes, into mine. I remember him shaking me back and forth as he choked the life from my body. His grasp faded, releasing me as a struggle continued before my lulling form. My eyes refocused to see Brenda and Manny fighting. She had tried to strangle him with a belt but failed. Brenda wasn't very big, so once Manny pinned her, she couldn't move. I watched Manny start wrapping the belt around his fist. I grabbed my aluminum baseball bat that had fallen over in the quiver under a broken chair nearby and stumbled to my feet. Stars swam through my vision. Somehow I'd sprained my ankle throughout the chaos, but I didn't care. I staggered toward him and drew back the baseball bat. Aiming for the base of Manny's neck, I swung. The bat cracked him with a solid strike that sent shocks of pain through my forearms. Manny slumped to his side, his face turning beet red as his fingers and legs twitched. His neck was twisted weirdly. The aluminum bat slipped from my shaking fingers and pinged to the floor. Brenda shoved her abductor off of her and got up. The house was filled with a heavy silence as Manny's horrified expression stared straight ahead. He had stopped moving. Blood dripped from his nose, ears, and mouth to the floor. I was still worried he might return to life and come for us. Hey, look at me. Brenda took my hand and made me look into her good green eye. Are you all right? Yeah, I said, even though my hands were shaking uncontrollably. My name is Brenda, she said and then gave me a tight hug. Tears were welling from her eyes, but she wiped them away. We're going to get out of here, but we need to call the police first. We searched the house for a phone. The only one we found was Manny's cell in his bedroom. The phone was locked, but we could still use the emergency feature on the lock screen to contact the police. Before I could hit the call button for 911, Brenda's eyes widened. Wait, she said. I followed her back into the kitchen with the phone in hand she grabbed my baseball bat and rubbed the handle with her shirt before gripping it tightly in both hands. After, she tossed it next to Manny on the floor. Listen to me, okay? She said as she dropped to one knee beside me. When we call the police, I want you to tell them that I'm the one who hit him. Can you do that for me? I met Brenda's eyes. But why? I don't have time to explain, but it'll be easier. When we talk to the police officers and your parents, tell them I'm the one who killed him, she said. I did as Brenda asked and told the police that she was the one who dealt the killing blow to Manny. It would be a few years before I understood why she asked me to do this, not that it would have mattered in hindsight. It was self-defense, and I think most judges would have seen it that way. But Brenda assumed that because I was technically trespassing, it might get me into hot water. The police confiscated the baseball bat as a murder weapon in evidence. My parents had to fill out a ton of paperwork and get a lawyer. It was lame, but Brenda and I made the front page of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, like people still read newspapers in 2018, Missing UNT Student Found Alive. Brenda and I had our pictures taken on the Tarrant County Courthouse's front steps, and there was some deal about a Netflix documentary special in the works. The news article told the full story of how I had heard Brenda screaming from outside and acted quickly. When asked why I didn't call the police, I told them that I didn't think about it. That awarded a considerable amount of skepticism and frustration with officials, but they couldn't see any nefarious motive for me to have been in that situation. Investigators found out later that my and Brenda's stories didn't match up. That whole confusing part about how my baseball bat got into Brenda's hands. We thought it was going to spiral into a big deal, but then the entire thing went away overnight. It sounds ridiculous now, but our lawyer got wind from one of the receptionists at the police station that the baseball bat disappeared from the evidence room. No one had checked it out and video cameras were of no help. It was a rare anomaly where a key piece of evidence in an already complicated case went missing and eventually caused officials to drop the matter. Manny Finch would always be a suspect in question for future cold cases, but the police were done with Brenda and me. Brenda was a good friend of mine for many years. Nothing could cease the unending memory she had of Manny and the torture she was subjected to in that house. I loved Brenda like an older sister. No one could know what she felt, but she and I were family for what we had been through. She lived for another twelve years before she took her own life by jumping from a bridge in Switzerland. People think that's a sad story, but it isn't. There was not a more redeeming moment in Brenda's life than when she felt the wind on her face as she fell, the dissipation of Manny's last evil energy. There was a moment of pain, and then, freedom. Chapter 2 The Malark There are entrances to places that don't exist to the regular members of society. Nature is the most common passage to the old countries that are becoming lost as time goes on. I've seen places where travel-weary wizards go to retire, mountain ranges where dragons still pass over when they're not guarding ancient treasure, where there are no cars and buildings and tourists. Regular people look through them because they no longer know how to see, but it's right in front of us. I remained in loose contact with Brenda, but she moved to a different part of town several months after the incident. At 13 years old, public school was impossible. I couldn't see the dry erase board, and my teachers had little patience with me because I was bored and had more fun trying to make the other kids laugh. English? Who cares? Algebra? You're trying to compress a universe of beauty and art and holy majesty into some lines and equations? Private school was a joke. They just wanted me to teach myself to speed-read from the Bible. I could already speed read, so I memorized it to win their Bible drill games later. I had my worst teacher that year, a crone named Peggy Notes who forced me to write definitions from the dictionary when staying focused in class was difficult. To be fair, I didn't pay any attention to her teaching, so I could understand her need for retribution to a certain extent, but being forced to write that way caused irreversible damage to my developing handwriting. It wouldn't be such a big deal except that having proper hand etiquette would be crucial to my later line of work. Touché, Miss Notes, touché. I remember an afternoon when she scolded me for drawing fairies all over my homework after I had just waved my pencil at another student as if it were a magic wand to ward away a swarm of earwax flies. Elgar? said Miss Notes. She had a long, hooked nose and a nasty sneer and piercing green eyes. Her wild, curly blonde hair reminded me of ramen noodles, which reminded me of Manny Finch, so neither of us liked one another for silly reasons. "'Can I ask that you don't draw fairies on your homework anymore?' she asked in a sarcastic tone. "'There are just so many of them that I wanted to keep track. "'There are no fairies. "'Don't do it anymore,' she shook her head. "'There are so fairies. "'I've seen them,' I muttered. "'At that point, she dragged me by my arm out into the hall "'and glared at me with her wide, medusa-green eyes. "'Elgar, don't talk back to me. "'There are no fairies. "'I won't say it again. "'Go back inside and don't say another word for the rest of the day. "'Finish your definitions.' I never told my parents how cruel my 8th grade teacher was at the private school. I just thought adults were jerks like that all the time. It's odd how the people who leave the longest lasting impressions can be some of the worst people you'll ever meet. Yet we rarely think of the people who came and went pleasantly. I didn't belong in regular school or private school, and that was about to become extraordinarily clear. During the last week of school, we had a class field trip to the Greenbelt Corridor Park in Denton, Texas, where we were supposed to walk a few miles and then walk back. Those sorts of trips are memorable as a kid, but half the class had already been there. I hadn't, so I was fascinated by all the trees while still being in proximity to the metroplex. I might be overly critical of Notes from my memory. To be fair, she had been dealing with a cheating husband, her patience was tested daily by 29 normal children, and then you add hyperactive me to the equation. She had tried to have me put on Ritalin, but my parents wouldn't spring for it. I did have to get glasses, though. They were thin-rimmed with cheesy brown leopard spots on the earpieces. They didn't last long. That morning, she was in a lousy mood. We were supposed to be staying with our buddy, but I had been paired with Jim Crook. Jim Crook had a gas and BO problem. I didn't like being near him, but Miss Notes kept positioning me at his side to exert as much dominance and authority over me as possible while she still could. Crook and I were neutral. I didn't want to say out loud that he smelled like BO, so I'd float away from him as we walked. Finally, Miss Notes isolated me behind the rest of the students and towered over me with her hands on her hips. "'Elgar, we have not had one good day together this year. Do you know that?' "'I—' "'Not one good day,' she said with that wide-eyed, piercing glare. "'Write definitions on the drive home.' "'I don't have any paper. I took it all home, like you said.' "'I'll give you paper. Now walk with Jim and don't wander away.' I wanted to argue, but I wouldn't. That would mean that she won, and defiant as I am, I could not let her win." But then I realized that I would never win with Peggy Notes. I was so sick of definitions, sick of her attitude, and sick of her. I waited until she walked ahead, got crook chatting with Sarah about playing the cornet in the school band, and conveniently hooked a ride on the grassy avenue alongside the creek. As simple as that, I was free and away from the invisible tether of Miss Notes' authority. In an effort to put as much distance between her and me as possible, I began to jog. As the trees shrouded my path along the creek, I ducked back into the forest and trekked through the brush up the hillside. When I exited the tree line at the top of the hill, I was no longer in Denton, Texas. I saw rolling hills and gnarled trees beneath the gray sky that had been threatening rain all morning. I hiked onward, still too young to know that I was in a place that Miss Notes couldn't find if she wanted to. I had slipped into one of the old worlds. I found myself in a desolate, empty plain that traversed a moonscape of hills and valleys. I was lost, and it was beginning to rain. I didn't mind since the air was warm, but I was getting hungry. My shoes had begun to fill with dirt, and I was exhausted from walking through the humid fog when I found a new resolve. A crooked chimney rose from the mist in the distance. Steam billowed from the pointed chimney top that looked like something out of a Dr. Seuss book. At last, I stood on a vista overlooking the tower that rose from a perfect cube of bricks on the bank of a purple lake. The building seemed unnaturally welcoming. The sun had started to drop behind the cloud cover overhead, bringing the twilight of the evening to the sky. A series of odd aromas filled my olfactory. First, I smelled what was unmistakably bleach, which then changed to the smell of cookies. My stomach yawned and growled to the aroma. I made my descent toward the bank of that otherworldly purple lake. I clambered down the hillside, ashy dirt filling my socks. My hunger plummeted as I drew closer. A kind of desperation came over me as I stumbled between the gnarled roots of the dead brush that jutted from the cobalt-gray soil. In retrospect, I should have known that the building wasn't what it appeared. An aroma of home-cooked fried chicken filled my nostrils. I slipped and skidded down the last of the hill and dusted myself off at the bottom. When I looked up, the brick building stood ominously on the bank over the lake. The sun shined off the brown and yellow bricks of the cube before me. If I'd been older, I would have seen that the building cast no shadow or saw that there was no visible door to the structure, and yet I still firmly believed that there was a table of delicious food within. I took a step forward. The bricks of the building began to churn and rotate. They flipped around one another as the crooked tower collapsed into an empty plane atop the cube. I stood there, speechless. Eight long black legs fired from the opening at the top where the tower had disappeared, curling and dipping down to the ground on either side of the brick box. The opaque black pincers lifted the cube up into the air, and I started to run. I felt a tugging sensation at my jeans as the ground went out from under my feet. My chest hit the dirt, and I was dragged back toward that eerie lavender lake. I flipped over to see the pincer cube looming over me. It quickly rushed down with the intent to smash me. I dove out of the way as the ground shook under my feet. The black pincers folded back inside the box as I stumbled to a run along the stones of the lakeside. I spared a glance over my shoulder when I thought it might be safe, only to see the cube still positioned where it was with the empty plane facing upward. The bricks of the structure began to churn and spin, this time the bricks of its composure unrolling and unraveling into a sort of golem. Two narrow black slits had formed into its cube of a head for eyes, while a long slit of absent bricks for a mouth made its neutral expression complete. While it looked like a nightmarish creature from Minecraft, it also looked like the building was trying to mimic me. I didn't get to see what it planned to do next as a huge ball of orange fire traced from the hillside and collided with the thing's brick-like chest. The brick golem exploded in a giant plume of smoke and fire. A massive black spider the size of an SUV fell within the charred and flaming bricks into a pile of smoldering debris. The spider launched into motion, aiming directly for me. Terror rooted my feet in place as I saw twelve monstrous opaque black eyes surging toward me beyond skittering black pincers. A cheetah charged the spider from the side. I watched as the two creatures sprawled apart, the cheetah bounding onto its hind legs to transform into what was unmistakably a girl with dyed blue hair wielding a gladiator sword and a viking shield. Bring it! She yelled as the spider clashed into her guard. The girl skillfully deflected the monster spider before it gave a sudden lunge that would be its undoing. It fired forward onto the point of her blade, giving a terrible shriek that echoed across the hills as its flailing mandibles shriveled to dust. The rest of it turned to ash around the extended blade of the girl's sword. She put the shield on her back and sheathed her weapon as she turned to me. I then watched her reappear in a different outfit minus her sword and shield a second later. She wore a brown coat, frayed jean shorts, and a pair of black stockings that descended to a pair of Converse shoes. Over her eyes were a pair of old leather goggles with steel-rimmed lenses. Two boys appeared next to her. When I say appear, I mean that literally. They materialized within a fraction of a second before our eyes. All three of them looked like high school kids. An older boy with sandy blonde hair wearing a forest green hoodie and blue jeans backhanded my shoulder. You almost got yourself killed, kid, he yelled. He was a foot taller than the other two and looked like he'd make a good quarterback one day. It wasn't his fault, Andrew, said the girl with the blue hair. He had no idea the malark would try to eat him. Why did you invite a lobe like Bucky to join us, Harriet? Andrew scowled. The other boy, about a year older than me, spread his arms in silent protest. Bucky wore a pair of black vans and knee-high socks that were consumed by his baggy shorts. He wore a black and red bowling shirt over his white undershirt. On the breast pocket were the words Ted's Discount Auto Repair and Salvage. Harriet ignored the question and turned to me. What's shaking, bacon? She pinched the rim of her goggles and put them on her forehead. Her green eyes had aqua green light radiating from them so I couldn't see her pupils. I... He acts like a mortal kid, Andrew said. Yeah, but he ain't mortal if he's here, said Bucky. I... I was just hungry, I stammered. He must not have wanted to be where he was before he got here, Harriet mused. What should we do with him? Andrew asked. What do you mean, what should we do with him? Harriet scoffed. How old are you, kid? Bucky asked. Thirteen, I replied. Bucky looked between Harriet and Andrew, who looked back at each other. "'And you have no idea how you got here?' Andrew asked. "'I just walked,' I thumbed over my shoulder. "'Just walked!' he laughed. No one else did. "'Look, kid, nobody from your world just walks into this one, "'so why don't you start explaining why we can see you and you can see us?' "'I don't know why I can see you,' I said hopelessly. "'Harriet crossed her arms and chewed her cheek. "'Where are you from? We can't just leave you out here. "'It's dangerous for a kid to be wandering around this world.' I'm from Fort Worth, Texas. You guys keep saying this world and that world like there's more than one world, I said. When no one replied, I continued. Isn't this Texas? All three kids burst out laughing. Andrew slapped his knees as Bucky fell on his back. Harriet clutched her stomach and wiped a tear from her eye. That's the funniest thing I've heard all day, Bucky said. "'My name's Felonius Bruckner, but everyone calls me Bucky. "'This is Christina Harriet. "'She goes by Harriet. "'And this is Andrew Sibelius, who broke the norm and went by his first name. "'What's your name, kid?' "'Elgar King,' I replied. "'Harriet and Andrew exchanged that odd look again before looking back at me. "'Are you... one of us?' "'Harriet asked, plucking a wriggling earwax worm from her ear and squishing it between her fingers. "'She was the only other person I had ever met who could see them.' "'I guess so,' I laughed.' I had never met anyone else who seemed so much like me. It wasn't just our names, it was our stances, our quirks, our mannerisms. We were all goofy people. Harriet had long legs, and with the enchantment in her eyes, it was tricky to read her expression. Andrew was bigger than everyone, barrel-chested and big-boned with meaty fists that hung at his sides. Bucky was a little taller than me with short-cropped brown hair and a tattoo on the back of his hand. He neurotically chewed the skin around his stubby fingers as we looked at one another. Why aren't you in school? Andrew asked. I am in school. I was on this field trip with my awful teacher, Miss Notes. I got sick of her, so I wandered off into the woods. I should be back with them. They're probably going to worry, but I don't care. You don't care? Bucky asked. I mean, I think my parents will care that I went missing, but they're so busy, I don't know if they'll notice. I'm sure someone will come looking for me eventually, I said. But Miss Notes can take a hike, Harriet said, crossing her arms and looking between Andrew and Bucky. I don't like this. I don't like this at all. What are we going to do with him? I already asked you that, said Andrew. You acted like it was a stupid question. He's in mortal school in dinky old United States of America, Texas. His name is Elgar King and he randomly found his way into our world. Bucky rubbed his hands together. Oh man, somebody screwed up big time. What are you guys talking about? I interrupted. We've got to take him back to school with us, said Bucky. Principal Dvorak will know what to do. He can't port there, we'd have to walk to the entrance dais by foot, Andrew shook his head. Absolutely not. We take him back to his class, wipe the minds of the teacher and the kids, and forget this encounter happened. That's monstrous, Harriet said. If there's a chance that he's one of us, then we should have Dvorak test his magical awareness. Do I have to remind you, Harriet, said Andrew in a low tone. That all this week we're on the PA test, and that anything could be part of that test? That being said, I think my suggestion would fall into the category of how we should approach this situation. No way Baldur's Field create the frickin' 64,000 AHD has anything that's part of our PA test, especially not this kid. Norman Purcell does not care enough to create a situation like this, Harriet stated. He really did come from Earth, Bucky said. Of all the universes, what are the odds we'd happen to run into him here, Harriet wondered. Andrew sighed, pretty, stinking, low. A long silence passed between us. Please don't take me back to my teacher, I begged them. "'I can't stand it there. You said... you said you wanted to test my magical ability. "'I have things. I can't, like, cast spells or appear in different places, not that I know of. "'But I can sometimes read minds and sense where people have been. "'It's not always strong, but... it's okay,' interrupted Andrew. "'We get it. You've got some skill, but you've got to understand that we'd be risking our necks "'from both your world and ours if we were to take you back.' "'We're taking him back,' Harriet said. "'It's not a question anymore, Andrew. You can leave if you want.' Good news and bad news, Bucky said. He held out his left hand with his palm to the sky and confronted a sort of conical display in a holographic light. There were odd glyphs and characters scrolling with each tab he swiped to with his right hand until he was looking at an overhead map. Good news is that we're only about a mile from the fold into present Earth. The bad news is that the nearest gate to the school is 52 miles away in the Dallas Public Library in downtown Dallas. Andrew gave a frustrated sigh. I already told you, gates, ports, group ports, none of it will work for him, he pointed at me. He's never been to the school and he doesn't have his Midas stone, so he can't get into the library. Oh yeah, I forgot, Harriet bit the nail of her index finger. In that case, said Bucky, we're about 500 miles from a portal to the school once we're on Earth. That's not too bad, Harriet shrugged. My parents' house in Cali is much farther. It's pretty far when you're trying to kidnap a kid in Texas, Andrew said. Guys, let's send him back through the fold where he came and go on about our business. We need to finish our homework in Valhalla Crater. We don't have time to walk across Tejas for some kid who is probably just non-magical enough to meet the school's criteria for a mortal. I already told you, said Harriet. You can go, but I'm not leaving him. I'll take him to the school myself. Both of you can take off for all I care. Really, Harriet? Andrew scowled at her. I think Andrew might be right, for once, Bucky sighed. You seem like an awesome guy and all, Elgar, but it's not our job to escort mortals to our school. It's kind of illegal. But he's not a normal mortal, Harriet protested and grabbed my hand. Come on, Elgar, we're going. I'll be the one to get in trouble. You guys go back to your quest. Fine, we will, Andrew said and disappeared as Harriet and I backtracked across the sandy field toward the twisted forest where I had entered this strange place. Bucky took a deep breath. Good luck, you guys. See ya, Harriet said. Good to meet you, Elgar. Hope to see you at school one day. Bucky shot me a grin before disappearing into midair as well. You guys can just... Appear places? I asked. We have to, but only to areas we've been before. There are a lot of places with enchantments that ban porting. We have school too, but it's different from what you're used to. I'd tell you more, but we're not supposed to disclose any information to anyone outside our network. What's that mean? I asked. It means I've already said too much. Let's get you back to Earth and see if we can hitch a ride to my school. Where is it? The portal is literally in the middle of freaking nowhere in the hills near Fort Davis, she answered. That's the school? Just the portal, Harriet sighed. I told you I was from California, so the one we're going to is only one of four entrances. There used to be more, but nosy mortals with a hint of magic were frequently finding themselves wandering through the halls of our school. The trees began to look like those of the Denton Greenbelt Corridor. Eventually, we found ourselves at a gravel path by the creek where I left Miss Notes and my classmates. Harriet took a moment to consider our travel options as she pulled up that strange conical holographic interface from her hand that was identical to Bucky's. There's a lake to the north. Let's go there. Why? I asked. What do I look like to you, a genie? I'm not going to fly us around on a magic carpet. She walked on like I could easily understand what she was talking about. In actuality, nothing any person had said to me in my entire life had been stranger. We walked north down the path toward Lake Ray Roberts, chatting more about my life than about hers until I started asking the right questions. You guys acted surprised that I was in that place. Why was it so strange to you? Because Kreatha isn't a place where an inexperienced caster would find himself, said Harriet. We went there intentionally because I was questing in Baldur's Field for my alterations class an hour ago. I didn't know where else to port us that was safe after we almost got eaten by a big lizard. That's when we found you. I still didn't know why it was so important to get to the lake. The sun was peeking out from under the cloud cover in the west, setting the horizon ablaze with pink and orange light. Once we arrived, we found a house with a pier out by the shoreline. Harriet told me to get inside a rowboat that was hitched to the dock nearby, and I did. She got in and untied the rope around the dock post. Harriet made a gesture with her left hand and said, Nalala. Several of the glyphs I had seen earlier burned into the wood of the boat. We fired into motion, lifting from the waves of the lake as we soared into the air. I could smell the water, the air, see the birds. It was like nothing I had ever imagined. My ears popped painfully as we climbed in altitude with the Texas countryside spreading in all directions below us. Harriet reclined in the boat, smiling at my amazement. It's been a while since I had that look on my face, she said as we rose over the hills below. I saw houses, fields, and valleys of the Texas hill country passing as we flew about 70 miles per hour in broad daylight. Tom Young, she said, gesturing at the vessels in her wall. The boat became invisible and we were flying through the air without aid. The feeling was disorienting, seeing the world below and me in it like a bird in motion without wings. Can they... Nope, we're invisible to everyone on the ground, but a plane... She gave me a sly smirk. Don't worry, I've never been spotted. That's comforting, I said. So what are you guys, like, mages or sorcerers? Harriet narrowed her eyes at me. Those are misconceptions of what we are, probably of what you are, too. We're psionics, I shrugged. You were able to use magic. Everybody can use magic to a certain extent or learn if you know where to go. It's hard because our magic is language. It's easy to get frustrated and give up. So I could cast the spells you just cast if I knew the words? I asked, skeptical. Why don't you give it a whirl next time you're feeling bold? She smirked. You might have a little luck, but without proper training, you'll just be muttering at things for no reason. It takes practice, but try this one. She opened her hand and said, Bull. From her open palm, a ball of swirling fire appeared. It stayed for a few seconds before extinguishing into smoke. Just bull? I asked stupidly. Harriet laughed. (laughs) Not bull. Pa, she emphasized. Bull. Almost like the letters P and B together. Bull, I said, grinning. Perfect, she said. After a few tries, I felt fairly confident. Bull! Boom! My eyes filled with light. The next thing I knew, the half of the boat that wasn't smoldering splinters in the wind was on fire. Harriet had hold of me around the middle and was chanting something to keep the two of us afloat. Behind us, there was a miniature mushroom cloud of smoke still lingering in the air. We were able to get up onto the floating front of the boat, but we were both hanging onto the rickety frame and bench that was loosely connected by a few nails and splinters. We glided near the shore of the lake as our craft finally gave way. I'm sorry, I said as we sopped out of the water the broken remains of our boat still floating on the surface of the placid lake behind us. A crowd of black and brown cows grazed under the shade of a large elm on the opposite bank, thinking nothing special about our appearance. It's okay, I'll just... cut this part off. She cringed at a charred crop of her hair as she dried it magically. No more magic until Mahler, our elemental teacher, has a chance to get you under control. Agreed, I said. It wasn't hard to get back into a different boat after we found some lake houses down the shoreline. We would later find that there was a witness to our mishap. The yokel who saw us claimed to the local news station that he saw an alien ship explode from another dimension, but the trip had cost them their vessel and they barely managed to cloak themselves before being seen by the earthlings below. He took a picture of the aftercloud with his phone, but it was dismissed as a firecracker that the yokel had more than likely fired off during a maniacal speed trip. In a society that was drowning in a constant wealth of information, all news was credible and nothing was real. You've just listened to the first two chapters of the audiobook The Last Necromancer. If you'd like to listen to the rest of the book, it's available for download on audible.com. Thanks for listening! The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was produced, directed, written, and voiced by Benjamin Allen. If you'd like to support our podcast, be sure to subscribe, leave a good review, like, or check out our donation page on the contacts page of our website. You can also purchase my books and audiobooks in the future. Visit ekpublishingmedia.com for more information. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is an EK Publishing Media production 2018.